First LastPass, now another password manager has been breached. Threema, the secure messenger, is kind of in hot water a little bit after a new research paper has come out, a Tor user was unmasked, and a lot more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 117, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the last week. I am Henry from TechLore. Unfortunately, there is no Nate. He had the last minute pull out because of an emergency, so it is just me this week. Our promo segment is a little bit different because we have some exciting updates for all of you, so listen up, everyone. We have now introduced a new Patreon tier. We now have a $5 tier, which is now how you join our weekly Q&A. So at the end of every report every week, there's a Q&A that comes from our patrons. If you want to ask some of those questions, we now have that set up for just the smallest Patreon tier. So if you want to support us on Patreon, you can now join for just $5. Now, as for the $10 tier, we used to do ad-free segments, so we would get rid of these promos, but we're not just doing that, we're also keeping a lot of the things that we cut out. So for those who don't know, most surveillance reports are probably around an hour and a half, and then we slim that down to halfway through, and that kind of sucks because it loses a lot of the nuance, and it also cuts out some of the complexity behind some of the stories, as well as some of our discussions about the stories. And so patrons who are on the $10 a month tier get access to promo free and also the extended version so you get more of the behind the scenes look of how we look at things and how we talk about things back here before it all gets trimmed down for YouTube. And so check it out all in the description. That's not the only announcement though. We also have released LibraPay. LibraPay is also a contribution that is supported, I believe, through bank and PayPal. So now you can support us directly. There are no perks or benefits from doing that, but it does offer a non-Patreon and a non-cryptocurrency way of supporting us. So that is down below now as well. And as always, there's Monero. And you can always just directly send us some Monero, which is probably the most private way of supporting us, though we have no perks for doing so. So you now have three very unique ways of supporting us to hopefully allow as many people as possible to support this podcast, because as of right now, this podcast has no sponsors and it's run entirely for free for the world. So all our supporters are doing everyone a great favor by allowing us to cover the news each week pretty much without needing to rely on sponsors as of right now, which is awesome. So thank you all so much and our supporters. You all have been making this possible and I really appreciate it. And I know Nate does too. Let's not waste any time. Let's go into our highlight stories. So we recently talked about the last past data breach and all the stuff that happened there, which was definitely not good. Well, now another company has gone under, which is Norton LifeLock, which warns that hackers breached their password manager accounts. Gen Digital, which is formerly Symantec and Norton LifeLock, is sending data breach notifications to its customers, informing them that hackers have successfully breached Norton password manager accounts in a credential stuffing attack. They say, quote, our own systems are not compromised. However, we strongly believe that an unauthorized third party knows and has utilized your username and password for your account. This username and password combination may potentially also be known to others. Exposed data includes first names, last names, phone numbers, and mailing addresses. Vaults may also have potentially been exposed. So this is all really bad news. What I'm really upset about with these password manager data breaches is there's already a hesitation for people to use password managers based on the assumption that it's all in one place and what if it gets hacked then people have access to everything, which is a valid complaint, but the reality is For a majority of people, password managers are almost always the more secure way to go over most other methods, and this just gives password managers a much worse reputation. I want to remind people that a well-executed and properly secured password manager is still always the way to go for most people. For most people, there are very good exceptions, but do not let LastPass and Norton scare people away from cloud-based password managers as someone who personally does not use cloud-based password managers. Again, 
Bitwarden is an open source implementation. You can actually verify that they're doing things properly. Norton, LastPass, all these other services haven't been able to do that and they are proprietary, but I personally would recommend people check out Bitwarden and KeePass. Those are really probably the best ways to go and both can be cloud synced. Bitwarden is a little bit simpler to do so. And now our data breaches section. Twitter has claimed that the leaked data of 200 million users, which we just covered recently, was not stolen from its systems. This is an interesting claim since Bleeping Computer asks, then why did all the email addresses check out and pass verification checks? So it just seems like Twitter is fighting back on this a little bit. I'm sure we're going to start getting more updates on this story as time goes on. One more reason to stay subscribed to the surveillance report. Companies! This one is a little depressing. So a New York Times story accidentally leaked phone numbers of Russian soldiers that were criticizing war. Motherboard was able to find multiple instances of the New York Times not removing metadata from their stories prior to publication. This metadata frequently included internal notes, including names, numbers, and relations of their sources for quotes, leaks, etc. Many of them were Russian sources criticizing Putin and other high ops, which is not a good situation for those individuals. Disappointingly, the Times kept saying that the metadata was only up for a few hours before they noticed and removed it, despite Motherboard sometimes finding it in stories that were months out. So this is a very serious issue, especially because in journalism, you really have to protect your sources. This is not a good look for the New York Times at all. And you would expect better from people who should be taking privacy and security a lot more seriously. Up next, controversy erupts over a non-consensual AI mental health experiment. So this comes from a company called Coco, who's one of those companies where you can chat online with a volunteer. Apparently, Coco ran an experiment without telling patients where GPT-3, which is OpenAI's tech that powers ChatGPT, was used to formulate responses to patients. Volunteers could then choose to either reply with the AI response or send their own reply. After backlash, co-founder Rob Morris claims that everyone who was involved was aware of what was going on and defended that patients were not speaking directly to the AI. And now we're going to migrate into the research of the week. Identity thieves have bypassed experience security to view credit reports. So just to lay out the framework here, over in the U.S., we have three major credit bureaus, which is how you have your credit score and you are a part of society with those scores. Without a credit score, you can't do things like get a mortgage on a home or get a loan for a car, which um, I know the loan for the car is already a foreign concept to a lot of places in the world where I don't believe that's anywhere near as common. The U.S. seems to rely a lot more on credit and debt than other places in the world. Make of that what you will. To kind of bring it full circle, you can't really avoid experience. So this could possibly impact a lot of people. Now, for the Americans who don't know, you can get a free credit report via annualcreditreport.com. And you can request one per year from each of the big three credit bureaus. Common advice is to stagger them and get them every four months so you can get them all on a regular basis and you can check your report for any inaccuracies. Well, unfortunately, it turns out cybercriminals discovered that by starting the process and requesting an Experian report, which takes you to Experian's website to confirm your identity, they could view a person's report by just changing the URL. This means if an attacker knew your name, address, social security number, and date of birth, then they could bypass the verification requests, which were notoriously not difficult to figure out anyways, we've covered that in previous stories, and view your report. This article goes on to note several other experience screw-ups, like how users would get locked out of their accounts by attackers making a new one using a new email address, and customer service would just tell them to do the same thing rather than actually addressing the attack vector. 
This is just a reminder to freeze your credit. Um, the person who wrote this article also notes that this also reduces the number of people who can view your credit file, which also offers you additional privacy, not just protection from people opening things under your name. So be careful with credit. If you haven't frozen your credit, people, you got to do that. Um, it really has no negative impact. It honestly should be the default, uh, to be honest. Um, fortunately, this specific attack, someone had to know your name, address, social security number, and date of birth, which is a lot of points to know, but um, it's still definitely concerning, and we're sharing it nonetheless. This one's fun. So researchers could track the GPS location of all of California's new digital license plates. For those who haven't seen it, California has released these kind of very exclusive that you have to pay for license plates that, frankly, they look really cool. They're like very clean, black and white. You can't even really tell they're digital, but you can look them up online. Just type in California digital license plate. I think they look pretty cool. With that said, these things are 24-7 connected to the internet and they have lots of data points that they're sending back and forth all the time. Not a good thing to do. So these things really are like smart plates because they really do connect to the internet and try to do different things. So I bet you know where this is going. A team of security researchers managed to gain super administrative access into Reviver, which is the company behind these plates, which launched last year. That access allowed them to track the physical GPS location of all Reviver customers and change a section of text at the bottom of the license plate designed for personalized messages to whatever they wished. The vulnerability has been patched, but presumably the underlying issue, unreasonable access and collection in the name of features, has not. For those who know me, you know that I am very opposed to anything that's smart for the most part. A, because I don't think they're actually that smart, and B, because they are very common areas of attack and they're not very secure yet, and they are normally privacy invasive. And so having a smart license plate I do ask what's the benefit here and what's the trade-off, and personally for me, I can never justify having one of these, despite how cool I might think they look. The last research article, Privacy on the Line, Boffins Break VOLTE Phone Security. Researchers have found a way to access encrypted call metadata. I don't know if it's VOLTE or VOLTE or just VOLTE. I'm going to go with VOLTE. It's funny, all these words in the tech world, um, you read them, but it's really rare to actually have to say them. And then when I actually say them, I'm like, wait, how do you say that? Because that's a word I've only ever read before. Interesting note about reading things for surveillance reports. But the activity logs describe call times, duration, and direction, whether incoming or outgoing, for mobile network conversations. They claim they were able to map all operations 83.7% of the time and 100% of the time when similarly sized operations were analyzed for the context in which they're allowed. The staff technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or the EFF, told the register in an email that while this attack looks more esoteric than other techniques that can be employed with MZ catchers, it's a reminder that 5G isn't the security fix that it has been made out to be. What he's referring to here is when 5G was being released, a lot of people were touting that it was greatly more secure than 4G and LTE, and while that might be the case, it doesn't fix all the issues. And now let's go into politics. I don't have Nate here to take all the difficult ones. So U.S. Supreme Court lets Meta's WhatsApp pursue Pegasus spyware suit. WhatsApp is pursuing a lawsuit accusing Israel's NSO group of exploiting a bug in WhatsApp to install spy software along the surveillance of about 1,400 people, including journalists, human rights activists, and other people. NSO has argued that it is immune from being sued because it was acting as an agent for unidentified foreign governments when it installed the spyware. 
we're, we're pretty much just seeing the blame game here all around. It is funny that it's WhatsApp who's now trying to accuse other people of being spyware when we could make valid arguments for WhatsApp being spyware in a lot of different places as well. Though I personally don't like the term spyware and how often it's used because I don't feel it actually represents all situations cleanly. Either way, it seems like the elephants are fighting and we will see what comes out of it. Next story, a government watchdog spent $15,000 to crack a federal agency's password in minutes. This is actually a rebuke of the Department of the Interior's cybersecurity posture, finding it was able to crack thousands of employee user accounts because the department's security policies allowed easily guessable passwords, like password 1234. Listeners, if your password is password 1234... I really hope you've learned more than that by listening to this podcast. But if not, let's dive into it. Within the first 90 minutes, the watchdog was able to recover nearly 14,000 employee passwords, or about 16% of all department accounts, including passwords like, quote, polar underscore bear 65, and National Parks 2014. The watchdog also recovered hundreds of accounts belonging to senior government employees and other accounts with elevated security privileges for accessing sensitive data and systems. For those who want the hardware details here, the setup they used consisted of two rigs with eight GPUs, 16 total, and a management console. The rigs themselves run multiple open source containers where we can bring up to two, four, or eight GPUs and assign them tasks from the open source work distribution console. These GPUs are also two to three generations behind currently available products. With just this configuration, they were able to do all of this, which by the way, yes, it's expensive. $15,000 is definitely no a joking amount of money, but there are a lot of people in the world who can, with $15,000, ruin a lot of people's lives. So we really should raise the bottom bar here a little bit, where $15,000 doesn't allow you to get the passwords of 16% of a federal agency. And with all of that said, next story, a police app has exposed secret details about raids and suspects. In September 2022, police in Southern California teamed up for a massive operation called Operation Protect the Innocent to investigate and arrest more than 600 suspected sex offenders. Before I continue here, if anyone's new, we normally criticize these names not because of the ambitions or what they're trying to do through these programs, but more so how misleading these names can be and how a lot of times they ironically put more people in harm from the privacy angle. So just reminding, we always look at things from the privacy angle when we cover stories like this, despite how serious and tragic a lot of these stories can be. Back to the story, it went well, but what the police didn't do was that the app they used to coordinate called Sweep Wizard was leaking data publicly online. Also, a funny note, cops were using a free trial at the time. They weren't even paying for it. So this particular operation wasn't even that unique. Wired found data from dozens of departments over multiple years while investigating. It included stuff like suspect home coordinates, time of the raid, demographic and contact information, and even social security numbers. Some of these suspects were minors, and it also leaked a lot of the officer data too. So no matter how you look at this, a lot of people got wrapped up into this situation that really shouldn't have happened. After Wired reported the vulnerability, it seems the website and app have all been taken down, and it's unclear when it will be back up. So again, very unfortunate story here, and I think this does speak to how a lot of police, this is a very, 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 very common theme here, people. We see this almost every week. There's some new police tool or technology that they implement before it's even been tested. And I also want to outline police are funded with like taxpayer money, and it's kind of crazy that 
Um, I know, Nate, if he was here, he'd be saying it's crazy that we allow police and government agencies to use things that are not open source and can't be publicly audited because it is being paid for with taxpayer money. I'm with him on that. I think everything that the police does or governments do or the software that they rely on or that they ask us to use should be open source as it should be something that's publicly verifiable when it's being provided by and to the public. Up next, New Jersey and Ohio are the latest states to ban TikTok on government devices. Wisconsin has announced their plans to join in. This is just a continuation of the recent anti-TikTok stuff going on. We've covered this already in previous surveillance reports if you're interested in that. Also stay subscribed because I'm sure there's going to be more updates. And on the topic of TikTok, TikTok has been fined in France for manipulative cookie consent flow. This is a 5 million euro penalty announced in which the regulator found it was not as easy for users to refuse cookies as to accept them. So it was manipulating consent by making it easier for site visitors to accept its tracking than to opt out. But less formally, this is referred to as a dark pattern. Dark patterns, we see these often with cookie consent flows where it's much easier to click accept than reject and they purposely make things very hard to do for users. This also takes the shape of something like Facebook. It's really difficult to delete a Facebook account. It's also really hard to opt out of privacy settings on Facebook. And these are all cons- and these are all considered dark patterns. It's a nice term to know, especially with friends and family. I think it's something that most people are very aware of, and it very closely ties into privacy, so it could be a good conversation starter for people who want to find better ways of introducing privacy to the people around them. The way I do this is, hey, here's a dark pattern. Hey, did you notice that TikTok, like, it's very difficult to even stop a video on TikTok. It just keeps giving you more and more things. That's a dark pattern, and it also carries over into keeping you on the platform as long as possible and collecting as much data as possible and making it very hard for you to leave the the entire ecosystem, which isn't fair to anyone. And now we're going to move into the FOSS, free and open source section of the week. Threema, which is a messenger that's been billed as better than Signal, is riddled with vulnerabilities. Just to outline some possible biases, um, Nate and myself both like Threema. In fact, they're both recommended on both of our websites. However, we've always kind of leaned towards Signal because Signal has had a much longer time to be open source and it's much more proven and much more stable. So we've always been a bit biased towards Signal regarding just a clear-cut recommendation to give people, but we've always liked Threema. And I still do like Threema despite this, and we'll cover like what this research actually means for individuals. To cover this story, researchers have reported on Monday that they found seven vulnerabilities in Threema that seriously call into question the true level of security the app has offered over the years. Two of the vulnerabilities require no special access to a Threema server or app to cryptographically impersonate a user. Three vulnerabilities require an attacker to gain access to a Threema server, and the remaining two can be exploited when an attacker gains access to an unlocked phone, such as at a border crossing. The article doesn't note this, but Threema did reply to the report, basically calling it overblown and irrelevant. They claimed that, quote, none of them ever had any considerable real-world impact, end quote. Some of their counterpoints are fair. For example, obviously, if someone has physical access to your unlocked device, you're already compromised. They also claim that with their new upcoming protocol, much of this will become outdated. I also want to mention Threema's Twitter response to all this was largely criticized, and they do have a history of making misleading claims, like they have claimed in the past the U.S. Cloud Act makes Signal seem suspicious, which isn't really grounded in any evidence or reality, and you don't see Signal make false claims like this about other messengers. 
To summarize this story, I do not think Threema is necessarily insecure. I just really think that if your top goal is security, as of today and as of what really all the evidence and research shows from people who really know their stuff, it's really, really challenging to beat the proven nature of Signal. The, and again, this comes from someone who really dislikes Signal's phone number requirements and everything else they're bringing to the table. If your goal is security, Signal really is top tier. And even from a privacy perspective, for certain threat models, it fits everything perfectly. The phone number requirement is still a problem, and it also means Signal doesn't fit anonymity-oriented threat models very nicely. Personal opinion here, I know we're going to start seeing, well, what about Session comments? Yes, Session acknowledges the phone number requirement problem very nicely, but also Session has nowhere near the proven track record on security that Signal has. And actually, Signal has already lots of nice perks on the security front that Session can't supply. I'm mainly referring to perfect forward secrecy which Session still doesn't offer, which is really unfortunate. So just to outline here, know why each messenger is good and bad. If you're saying this messenger is the best for all situations, you're really looking at it the wrong way. It's just important to understand what each messenger gives to the end user and what end user, because it's a very important question to ask. Up next, the Fairphone 2 will hit end of life after seven years of updates. A common complaint that I and many other people have is how lots of Android devices specifically do not get security updates very long. And the Fairphone is one of the few devices that actually really lives up to its name here. Fairphone has announced the end of life for the Fairphone 2, which will be in March of 2023. That phone was released in October 2015, so that's almost seven and a half years of software updates. The Fairphone 4, which is their newest device, has a five-year hardware warranty and six years of updates guaranteed, and the company's reputation says that it can provide that. Awesome news. I do want to mention, I do not believe, someone please correct me if I'm wrong, that Fairphone is actually supplying firmware updates. To outline this, Android has two kind of unique sets of updates, which is software updates and firmware updates. If you have something like an old Samsung device that no longer gets updates, you can flash a custom ROM on it and still continue to get software updates, so your Android operating system is getting updates, but the firmware, the underlying architecture of the device might not still get updates because they stopped updating those. So the way to look at this is you're getting updates for like half of your protection, which is still better than nothing and is still in a lot of ways good incentive to flash maybe a custom ROM on an old device. But I don't believe the Fairphone 2 is getting firmware updates after seven years. Though if this is incorrect, feel free to chime in. And finally, the last open source story of the week. Brave, the browser, has added support for Tor bridges in private windows with Tor. So Brave has had private windows with Tor, which essentially is a private window, like an incognito mode, that routes you through Tor. It is not even marketed nor advertised to be as private and anonymous as the Tor browser. Brave, in their official docs, actually suggests you use the Tor browser for anything very sensitive. So please understand what this tool is supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do. With that said, it's really cool because now it supports bridges. Bridges are a way to easily access Tor, especially in censored areas. So that now, so now you might be able to use Brave's Tor window in areas where Tor is blocked, which is really nice. And that is it for the open source news for the week. And now we're going to move into our last category, which is misfits. First one, how did the FBI get a Tor user's IP address? The user was charged in 2020 with trying to provide material support to ISIS. Again, we're covering stories from a privacy angle. We're not necessarily saying we agree or disagree with what people are doing. We're just covering the privacy implications of stories. The government, in their filing, says that he used Tor to make multiple visits to ISIS-related websites. But that's really all we know. 
Somehow the government was able to get his real IP address and arrest him. The government will likely not be eager to explain how this was possible. It is worth mentioning that in the 2015 Playpen incident, the government used malware planted on suspects' devices, but that was because they had taken over the websites. So this would have to be something entirely different. We just don't have enough information if this was user error or if there's some kind of fundamental issue with how Tor works. Though as of right now, there's no widespread reason for us to believe that Tor is in any way compromised as this is one isolated incident. And we haven't seen numerous incidents that all speak to the same problem of Tor. People getting caught on Tor is not a new thing. It's happened many times, though almost every time it has been a result of user error or some kind of very, very isolated attack that the government was able to pull off. Either way, stay subscribed, and if we get an update to the story, we will let you know. Next, ChatGPT written malware. So ChatGPT is this new AI that has been coming out. If you haven't heard of it, definitely check it out. It's interesting stuff, and you should probably look into it if you're into technology in any way. The cybercriminal community has already shown significant interest and are jumping into this latest trend to generate malicious code. The article notes that the code itself is usually riddled with flaws, but it's good enough to be a starting point. Schneier himself notes that this also has the potential to enable script kitties as it improves, especially possibly with increasingly dangerous capabilities. So very interesting stuff to see how AI is going to be utilized and if we're going to start seeing AI written malware. Two more stories before the Q&A. First, insurance company offers first ever cyber catastrophe bond, which seems about right. In the insurance industry, disaster disaster or catastrophe bonds, abbreviated as CATS, are used by insurance companies to help cover particularly harmful events. Traditionally speaking, that means stuff like fires, tornadoes, and other things that wreak untold financial havoc on businesses. So CATS are kind of like financial padding designed to help insurance companies pay for coverage under very costly circumstances. The article notes that if this becomes the norm, it could help protect companies from costly cyber attacks. However, they also note that this is merely a band-aid to a much bigger problem. Frankly, I don't have that much input on this since I'm not that familiar with how corporate insurance works, but if you are someone in the insurance world, I'm sure this story was interesting to you. And finally, Android TV box on Amazon came pre-installed with malware. A T95 Android TV with an all-winner T616 processor. It's just an Android TV box, <laughs> was available at multiple online retailers. It came with persistent, sophisticated malware baked into its firmware. This is incredibly rare, by the way. Like, a lot of people speculate stuff like this, and I'm like, guys, like, we need to calm down. Um, but th this actually happened. It's unclear if this was a one-off or if other devices were also compromised. Very fortunately, this guy is a sysadmin who was able to find and neutralize it. The customer found out because he was using the device with a pie hole and noticed several IP addresses that he knew were related to active malware. Big coincidence there and very glad that they caught that. They said, to avoid such risks, you can pick streaming devices from reputable vendors like Google Chromecast, Apple TV, Nvidia Shield, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku Stick. Bleeping Computer attempted to contact a listed seller on Amazon but could not find any website or email address associated with the brand. Very, very suspicious. Needless to say, this is definitely a story to keep in mind and make sure that you're being careful with the devices that you choose to buy. And now we're gonna go into the Q&A section. Again, you can now join the Q&A for half the cost as what it would have taken last week. So make sure to check out our Patreon because that's where these questions come from. First question is from Freddie Mercury who asks, I have a Samsung Active 2 smartwatch I know have pretty much killed my OPSEC, but are there ways I can use it more privately and securely? I've disabled all permissions, such as my location, storage, accounts, etc. Are there any advice you guys can give? So 
it sounds like you've already done pretty much what you can do. You've disabled all the permissions you can have. Um, I would recommend installing and not using features you don't need to use. I don't really know what you're using on the Samsung Active 2 either. Is it tracking your biometrics? What program is it sending those biometrics to? Is that an online-based account? What I would encourage you to do is actually look at the features of the device and see where that data is going because that's probably the biggest thing you should be looking at is what data is this directly collecting and where is it submitting that data and then trying to find ways to mitigate that. I would personally just recommend finding better alternatives though. I know that's the more costly option, but I personally just would avoid the device altogether if it were me. I know that there's the Pine Time, which does integrate with Android devices pretty nicely. And I believe it's also pretty darn cheap too. You might even be able to sell the Active 2 and maybe make a profit if you buy a Pine Time. There are other devices as well, which are more privacy respecting. And I'll also throw another option called Asteroid OS your way. Asteroid like the space thing. Asteroid OS um, is a custom ROM essentially that you can install on certain smartwatches. Check if your watch is compatible or you can get a watch that is compatible. And that's probably going to be the best middle ground of features and integration and usability that I can think of. But when it comes to what you've done, it sounds like you've done just about all you can do. At least all that I can think of. Next question from 404 Error. Do you have in mind some idea of what a vaguely ideal internet should be. Like, we certainly don't like huge tech companies spying on everyone, but I feel like it would be a step further to describe how you would want the internet slash computer space to be. It's admittedly an extremely broad question that doesn't have a definite simple answer, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about it. This is a very personal question, and I don't feel like there are many objective takes to this, so I'm just going to come full forward and say that this is definitely subjective personal opinion. I feel like many of the issues of the internet are not unique issues to the internet. Um, maybe with the exception of the anonymity that the internet provides general users, which I think is responsible for a lot of the more toxic side of the internet. And when I say anonymity, I don't even mean anonymity from a privacy perspective, just the fact that, that the you can communicate with anyone else in the world instantly without really any consequences. It's more so like pseudo-anonymity of just having this alias, even if it's your real name, to be able to go ahead and say whatever you want without consequences, and you lose that human connection. So I think the lack of human connection is a big problem of just the whole digital space in general. But to more closely answer your question, I think that a lot of the problems of the digital scape are a result of many of the consequences of capitalism and um, many of the issues that come along with that. Again, very subjective, but I think whether or not you appreciate or follow or believe in capitalism, it has many drawbacks. Every form of economy has, drawback has drawbacks. It's ludicrous to think that we have a perfect economy because we don't. We have a planet that's burning up. We have pandemics. We don't have a perfect world. And clearly, um, our economy isn't perfect. I think that capitalism is a big reason for why surveillance has is so prominent in this day and age because it's such a profitable way to make money and keep things free and people don't even know what's going on. If you've read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, you're going to know why that is and the very complex answer as to why the internet is set up the way it is. And it's because it's very profit-driven and it has a free model that comes along with it. And like what people say, if you're free, then you're the product, it does hold pretty true in a lot of the landscapes that are digital. So again, very personal opinion. I wish Nate was here. It'd be a good uh, conversation to have regarding this topic. But I really do think that um, our economy and the way that we profit and make money 
are responsible for a lot of the issues of the internet. Because I look at the open source world and things that don't rely on profit, and they seem to more closely align with what I envisioned the internet being like, or what it should be like. I'm thinking of federated platforms on social media versus Facebook. I'm thinking from a privacy angle using something like a custom ROM instead of stock Android. There are lots of examples we can go down here, but I think that there are already glimpses of what the internet would look like if there wasn't such a profit-driven incentive behind the majority of what people use. I hope I said that well enough. I don't know if I answered it. It was a very vague and broad question, but I hope that was useful for someone out there. If not, I'm just sharing my thoughts along, so you feel free to disagree. And there was a third question, unfortunately, for Nathan regarding his former military experience. Um, Please leave your comment again next week so that we can hit it next week when hopefully Nathan is back. And that's it for the week. Again, another password manager has been breached. Threema is in hot water after a new research paper. But again, take that with a grain of salt. There was a lot more nuance behind that story. And a Tor user was unmasked and lots of other good stuff this week. Promo segment. Again, we have a whole new Patreon tier, which is half the cost. And honestly, you get to ask some cool questions and we're not receiving that many questions right now. There's very few weeks where we even restrict questions. So just saying, if you want to get your questions asked, definitely go join our Patreon. And if you want the more extended versions of these episodes, definitely join our higher tier. If you don't like Patreon, we also have LibraPay, where you can consistently support us via fiat. And we also have Monero, which is the most private way of supporting us directly via Monero. And we see all of those contributions. We check it every week and we see all of you who support us via Monero. So thank you to all of you who do that. We don't know who you are, but we know that you're awesome. Just to finish this out, I want to thank you for listening to the surveillance support. It's always a pleasure to be here, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And the final thing I'm going to ask you to do is to share the podcast around. Make sure you're subscribed and to give us a rating if you're able to do that, Uh, probably tied to the platform that you're listening to this on. Um, Sharing is really important because privacy isn't the most attractive thing to talk about, and sharing certain stories is one of the best ways to advocate and make other people in your life aware about privacy and to make them care a little bit. It's really hard to convince people the importance of privacy, and when you're sharing with them stories very frequently, they might start to see why it's so important. So definitely share stories along or share the podcast around. Or maybe if there's a part of the podcast that you feel really might resonate with someone you know, definitely share them a timestamp. Just find ways to share it around because we really do rely on word of mouth as well as our supporters to keep this podcast going for free. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week where hopefully myself and Nathan will be back. Have a good rest of your week.